Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interviewed Jay Hicks, author of upcoming book, Energy Crises, Nixon, Ford Carter, and Hard Choices in the 1970s. Jay Hakes is the de facto U.S. energy policy expert. And this is why I'm so excited about his upcoming book, Energy Crises, because it provides a rare view of decision-making by three U.S. presidents, the influence of their sometimes combative aides, and the torturous relations with the rulers of Iran and Saudi Arabia during all three of those administrations. And in the episode, Jay and I will discuss his time as administrator of the U.S. Energy Information Administration during the Clinton presidency, then his time as director for research and policy for President Obama during the infamous BP oil spill, serving for 13 years as the director of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library, and finally, how some of these key policy and best practice decisions made over these three administrations are affecting our lives today. So without further ado, I'm so excited for y'all to hear our conversation with Jay Hakes, the U.S. energy policy expert and author of upcoming book, Energy Crises, Nick's Ford Carter and Hard Choices in the 1970s. Jay, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. Jay, ton of ground to cover today. You have a new book coming out, a lot to unpack there. But before we dive into the book and what gets you excited about writing it, a lot of history to uncover as well. So maybe for the listeners, give just a brief context on what makes you the go-to guy on all things energy. (laughs) Well, I mean, the major thing is I was head of the U.S. Energy Information Administration for uh, seven years, longer than anyone else had that position. And uh, that made me the federal government's chief energy analyst. And I've testified before Congress, I think, 27 times on energy issues. But recently, I've, I've been writing books on energy and articles on energy. And I, I try to cover everything, climate change, all the various forms of power. And I try to look both at what's happened in the past and what may be likely to happen in the future, which of course is perfect for climate change because of the carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for over a century. So you have to have kind of a long-term point of view. When you first started getting serious, both from an an academic perspective and then parlaying your studies into multiple presidential administrations, what was the initial eureka for you? What was the thing that fascinated you most and started you on that first mile into all things energy? Well, I think for a lot of people my age, the Arab oil embargo got people interested in energy because all of a sudden the systems that we had that we thought worked very well weren't working at all. People couldn't get gasoline and uh, we seemed to be held hostage by countries in the Middle East. And also in the 1970s, the Clean Air Act passed. And again, in my age group, we lived through driving through cities where you couldn't breathe the air. I I would drive in the summers through Gary, Indiana and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the skies were black. You go through a stage where you're interested in going green and cleaning up the environment. 
And uh, it was gradual to say that a really big part of the environment is climate. I mean, I actually, in the 1980s, late 1980s, sat in in one of Al Gore's climate slideshows, which became famous when his movie came out in 2006, but I'd seen it decades before. And then at EIA, of course, we had just signed the Rio Agreement on climate change. And so we were getting a lot of requests to do analysis of carbon dioxide emissions. So at that point, I got into it very seriously. And the more I dig into it, the more I find out. I, I have to, every couple of years, recalculate. It's a very complicated problem, but it does have solutions. But all of its little nuances and things require considerable concentration. Jay, before we get into some of these key questions of the book, I, I think maybe one way to segment the interview is to take or walk the listeners through your time in the Clinton admin, your time in the Obama admin. And if we start with your first set of energy requirements, obligations, pursuits in the Clinton admin, at the time, what was the key systemic problem that was a North Star of your day-to-day And I guess what was an accomplishment that you're proud of during that time? Or what was like a key macro problem that um, really drove your day-to-day obligations at that time? Well, I, I mean, I think that's an easy one to answer. When I arrived there was about the same year that the Netscape browser came out and that created the modern web. So we were an agency where we mailed out, we put postage stamps on envelopes and mailed out our data. And we were one of the first federal agencies to have everything available. So your listeners who are interested in energy today, they can go and get on the web pretty much what the president gets or the secretary of energy gets. And we were under tremendous pressure from the Congress to put it behind a paywall, which is terrible as that sounds, is what most countries around the world do. They put their government uh, data and analysis behind a paywall. And I incurred a few scars, but we, we resisted that. The first part of, of it was getting a web prob, uh, product that we're uh, proud of. And I think people are interested in energy today, they all know EIA. In fact, they know EIA all over the world because in China, if you want to learn about China, sometimes you go to the U.S. website. Now, at the end, I was starting to get more requests from from to do climate studies, the impact of the Kyoto Treaty, for instance. And EIA is a unique institution. It's independent, unlike almost any other agency in government. So not everybody was always happy with every uh, piece of work that we came up with, but I think we came through that with our honor intact and doing good basic uh, analysis. Now, going back today, would I change a few things here or there? Probably. But so what I was proud of is taking an agency where it had been hard to get the information and making it easy to get the information. So to me, in a democracy, you want people to to know what's going on and be transparent. So first of all, it's funny. I I spent a weird amount of time yesterday in a wormhole around Beanie Babies. Remember Mm -hmm. Beanie Babies, the collectibles back in the 90s? That was the time when I was at EIA was when Beanie Babies were popular. (laughs) So found out that Beanie Babies were one of the world's first products sold online. Okay. Ty, yeah, yeah. the company that that makes Beanie Babies, really was a trailblazer because in 1995, you have 1% of the United States that is on the internet. And they are producing these physical items with tags that say, check out our webpage. <laughs> and so what you just said 
And this is where I think there's an opportunity to create a really interesting piece around effectively like the forgotten soldiers of the internet. <laughs> Who are all the people that yeah. should be credited with helping trailblazer popularize or mainstream the use of the internet that kind of get let out or left out of the history books? Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of Beanie Babies, but uh, I do remember it going viral. It was like the Bitcoin of its of its day. But yeah, yes. I, I, I think Netscape Browser, which of course was not the one that endured changed our lives. I mean, and it wasn't until late in the Clinton administration that Google came along. And here I was the head of this agency, and I would spend several hours a day seeing if our products were showing up in Google searches. And so I created kind of a competition within the office. Hey, that office is showing up on Google searches. You're not. What's your problem? And so today, if you look for something in energy, EIA is going to show up pretty high on the list, I think. So at the time, was, did you have a higher up or a coworker that was particularly bullish on making sure that all of this information could be digitized? I mean, I, I imagine at the time that most people thought that the effort was outrageous. The pressure was not coming from above. In fact, the people above me were oblivious, which was a good thing because we could do it the right way. The pressure was coming from some of my older employees who were technically adept and some of my younger employees. We kept, for instance, briefings on countries around the world for the president or secretary of energy when they traveled. So the younger employees came to me and they said, we should put this on the web. And I said, well, we might get in trouble if we do that because they want exclusive knowledge. And finally, I decided not to ask for permission because if I had, it would have gone into a black hole and I never would have heard back. So we put it up on the web. And several years later, I got this call from the White House and they said, thank you. We were in these bilateral meetings one after another with these different countries. And we went to your country analysis briefs and it, we were prepared for every meeting. I, I, I said at the time, if you were a thousand miles away, you had better access to information on the web than you did if you were just down the hall, depending on paper. And if the White House had had to carry paper documents down to Rio, where these meetings were, or no, it was at Buenos Aires, actually, they wouldn't have carried the paper. So again, your point is absolutely valid. We forget what a big revolution this has been and the steps it took to get to where we are today. That's absolutely true. I, I, what I want to understand is after you leave the Clinton administration, there's a little bit of time before you head up as the director of research and policy at Obama's. And we'll talk about the whole oil spill and that because that's fascinating to me as well. But help us bridge the gap. What did you do in between those years? <laughs> well, I Aristotle said political science was the uh, queen of the sciences, I think. And I'm a PhD in political science. So I, I have broad interests. I've always been interested in presidential history. And I was as I was ending at EIA, I get this call from President Carter's office and said, we're about to have a vacancy as director of the Carter Presidential Library. And I thought, well, that sounds cool. And so I did that for uh, 13 years. And while I was there, of course, I learned how to use presidential records, get access to information that had previously been classified, which is the, the foundation of good historical work. And, but they were nice enough to let me take leaves of absence. I took one leave of absence to work on a study for the National Science Foundation. I took another two-week leave. The State Department sent me for two weeks to travel uh, Singapore and China and give lectures on climate change. 
and, and then the um, oil spill commission, which was a seven month uh, gig. So I had the base in Atlanta where I spent a lot of time with President Carter and, and presidential historians and uh, kept up on the energy field intentionally. I started work on my first book. And uh, so that's where I hung out. <laughs> and the National Archives are part of the federal government and the they have the presidential libraries from basically Herbert Hoover up now through more or less Obama. They haven't really built an Obama library yet, but I, w- I was at the dedication of the Clinton presidential library, the dedication of the George Bush presidential library and got to meet a lot of several presidents and first ladies that I value that time. It was a lot of fun. This is not my question list, but I you spent 13 years interacting with a, some of the most interesting people in the world. And then also reading some of the most precious information in the world. I'm curious, either a, is there some memory or incident that you can reflect on that was shocking or um, change your world perspective in some way, or b just like a broader takeaway from your experience committing yourself to honestly what some of the most important work over the course of a major chapter in your life i mean 13 years is a long time i'm I'm wondering what are like the one key thing that you remember from that experience or a shocking incident that happened well i don't know if this exactly is directly responsive to your question but i'm you're like a detective in history and you want to understand what went on and why it went on. So in the energy field, a big part of that is our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Now our relationship with Saudi Arabia and Pakistan is some of the most classified of information. It's a lot of it's never made public. And I, I had the good fortune. I, this actually happened when I was at the energy department, I, I was sent to, uh, Saudi Arabia to argue with their energy uh, minister, their oil minister, about how much oil they were producing. And it was actually a very successful meeting. So I know a lot about Saudi Arabia, but I had some big puzzles about what Saudi Arabia did in the 70s. And I kept running into documents where the, all the lettering was blocked out. And I, I can't use my national security clearances for things that I'm doing for my personal use, writing books. I found, I, I couldn't find this missing piece of information. And finally, I found a letter referring back to the original document where no one had blacked out the information. And I got the answer to my solution. So I, I don't know if that was life-changing, but for me, it solved a puzzle. You're always trying to, when, when you write a book, you're starting off with the questions that you have and hope that other people are interested in what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big part of it. But That's still amazing. I mean, think about it. You had access to just... Well, I, I purposely did not... I tried to avoid looking at classified documents unless I really had to because I didn't want someone coming in later and saying you had... I, I wasn't supposed to get privileged access. I, I'll tell you one story. We In the 2000 election, there, there was a rumor that George W. Bush had been sent to a mental hospital in Washington, D.C. And, and so there was the press was working on breaking this scandal. scandal. And the document in question, I, I did have to look at because the national press was demanding that it be released. And it was clearly, uh, it was a person that was mentally ill who went into the uh, mental hospital and claimed to be George W. Bush. 
but we could declassify it because it had the personal information of the person who was mentally ill. So it was classified, not because we were trying to protect George Bush. So I, I finally said, well, I've got to look at this document. And I called the reports and said, look, I can't tell you, I can't give you this document, but I have a long record in government of not lying to reporters. And so you're going to have to rely on my what I'm telling you, that this was re redacted to protect the identity of another person. And there's nothing in this document that has anything to do with uh, the person that's running for president. It's a careful area to maneuver. Uh, some people would have just said no comment. And mm -hmm. I, I felt even though I actually was for Al Gore, I don't, I, I think there's a certain fairness that has mm -hmm. to be uh, followed on all sides. And, and that was a case where I thought the right thing to do was to assure people that that document didn't have wasn't relevant to the presidential race. Mm -hmm. I'm in your camp. I think you did the right thing there. I'm curious. I think everyone listening to this podcast is of the right age where they can remember the now uh, infamous BP oil spill. I mean, I think that was probably the first time where I think the broader public said in some capacity, oil is bad, big oil is bad or evil or in some had this perception and the narrative started to popularize and be, I mean, look at the devastation, look at the second and third order effects when you had thousands of gallons of oil that were just wreaking havoc in, in habitats, killing wildlife. And you had the unique opportunity of being part of the commission that I, I think was administered right by President Obama at the time. He appointed the commissioners and I couldn't be a commissioner because I was a federal employee. That was a little quirk in the rule. So I was appointed uh, to work instead of being a part-time commissioner, I was the full-time director for policy and research. So I was there every day and I helped write a lot of it. So can you just bring us back to that moment in time? What were you brought on to do? And what were some of the permanent artifacts from your work during that time? Well, we had had the Santa Barbara oil spill in 1969, which was a big moment in environmental history. Uh, and I think a lot of people in the oil industry and, and I myself believed that the industry had fixed its problems and we weren't gonna have another big accident. And then we had a, a huge accident, which dwarfed uh, everything in the past. And person, I had worked for Bob Graham when he was a governor and senator. When he was appointed as co-chair of the commission, I thought, oh, I bet you I'll get a call <laughs> about helping on this. And so I arrived in, and we had to hire a staff. I think we got up to about 70 people. So I arrived in this empty office with two or three other people, the executive director, Richard Lazarus. And we had to hire people. We had a budget of about $10 million and we had to figure out what went on and how to fix it for the future. At the first, it was total confusion by both the government and BP. There was all sorts of misinformation being put out and they were trying to stem the well while we were trying to do the study. So it was hard to bring in the witnesses and, <laughs> because they were busy. But at the end of it, I, I think our report was very highly praised by at least by editorial writers and experts in the area. And we wrote a lot of side research papers. I wrote the first one, 
on the history of offshore drilling. And a couple of us there who had academic backgrounds, we said, we want a, a treasure trove of material for future graduate students. But so we published this report that was about, I guess, 300 pages. And then a lot of, which is very easy to find on the web if you just put in BP Oil Spill Commission. And then there's these side reports, which you can also find on the web, which delve into different aspects of it. But that report should be read relevant to the Texas electricity catastrophe we've had recently, because both of them are where you minimize risk, say we're not going to make investments to prevent a big accident from occurring, and then the accident occurs. And we actually, for that commission, brought in experts on nuclear energy because they'd had the Three Mile Island accident in 1979. And they actually did a good job of reducing risk, at least within the United States. We had some ac accidents elsewhere. But so we brought in the, the nuclear engineers to talk to the petroleum engineers about, hey, you need to do these kinds of statistical analysis and better assess your risk. So it, it was an issue not only about oil, but how to mentally deal with energy systems, all of which have dangers, including climate change, and, and assess that risk and make some investment before to prevent the problem rather than having, I, I don't know what it ended up costing BP, but it was the tens of billions of dollars in payments and lost equity and whatever. I, I will say that once the government and BP got their act together, they did try to make good as best you can with money. BP did put a lot of money back into the system without the threat of a lawsuit at the beginning. But there's cer certain parts of mother nature that you can't fix with money if you mess them up. It, 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 was, a, it was a lesson. Uh, it was a very intense seven months for me. The for a presidential commission, President Carter is actually responsible for this. When he commissioned the presidential study of the Three Mile Island accident, he, he set a six-month deadline. So since then, that's been the gold standard, to do it in six months. That sounds easy, but when you start off with no staff and all sorts of things, six months is, is a lot of pressure. Jesus. Jay, when Blaine first reached out and said that you were working on your newest book, it was an an easy yes. I mean, <laughs> listeners, if, if you're with us up until this point, you can see if there's one person that can write thoughtfully around all things energy crisis and how the broader public should be looking at history to make sure it doesn't repeat itself, takeaways, it's Jay up and down. Let's segue to energy crises, your new book coming out. Give the listeners a brief synopsis on what the book is about and why you're writing it. Okay. Well, I, most, I think, people in the energy business think that the 1970s was the major decade of energy history. And, and yet I found that a lot of energy experts didn't know a lot of basics. I mean, at the beginning of the decade, we had quotas on oil imports from other countries. And people say we did. And the explanations of why we'd had these gasoline shortages were very inadequate. When Carter was president, we had the crisis. Everybody said, well, it was the Shah was overthrown. Well, the Shah of Iran, we had the cutoff of oil from Iran months before the Shah, the Shah was overthrown. And the lines didn't appear for another six or seven months from when there was the first shutoff of oil. And so I thought, no one seems to know what happened and when it happened and why. And that's where Saudi Arabia comes in because 
unless what we were talking with Saudi Arabia about and how the two sides misunderstood each other, it, you can't fit the pieces of the puzzle together. So that's where I started. And then I decided a lot of my publisher and others wanted to name the book Energy Crisis. And I said, well, there's multiple crises going on here. There's the two big oil interruptions. There's the nuclear accident. There's chronic shortages of natural gas. It looks like there's going to be electricity shortage. So I'm going to call it crises. And so I, today it's easy to get a little bit sloppy and say, I can write this book based on web research, but you really can't when you go back to the 70s. So I was afraid that some of these written records were gonna get over, overlooked. So when I do research, I spend a lot of time going out to uh, archives and like a week at a time. So I went to the archives of the American Automobile Association because they had le weekly reports of where there were gasoline shortages and how bad they were and what states were the worst. Well, if I wanted to explain what was going on, I needed those records. So I went down to Orlando and spent a week there. I spent a, uh, a week researching the records of the U.S. Saudi ambassador of Saudi Arabia, who he's former governor of South Carolina. So his papers are at the University of South Carolina. I went to the relevant presidential libraries, the czar, Nixon's energy czar. It was graduate of Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. So I spent a week in those archives. And the problem with that is I, my first draft was about eight or 900 pages, and I couldn't find a publisher that would publish a book more than 400. So readers will get the kernels of hopefully the best of that, what could have been an eight or 900 page book. And if they have further questions, they can email me and, and I'll share additional information. But there's a lot packed into that 400 pages. When Blaine and I were talking about what types of questions, how to probe further, one of the questions, and this is interesting because all I talk about, all I study week in and week out is, is climate. People focused on, on solving it in innovative ways. And she said, let's actually talk about climate change. And by historical standards, should the current situation be considered a crisis? Yes and no. I, if the word crisis implies that we can work on it real hard for uh, a year and then we're done with it, I think that the answer is no. But is it extremely urgent and are we way behind uh, where we should have been? The answer is yes. So I'm comfortable with the word crisis. Just as a point of historical reference, being now a historian. The first congressional testimony warning about the climate change problem was in the 1950s. The first congressional testimony to about creating a scenario of what we had to do to get to zero carbon was presented to Congress when Carter was president. Now, in, in truth in advertising, that's in a future book I'm writing. Maybe you can have me back on that book too. So I, I do make some references to climate change in the current book that's coming out in April, but it's overwhelmed a little bit by these big oil interruptions. It's remarkable that's not that it's not until we get to the Paris Agreement in 2015 that the world sort of gets an agreement that India, China, and the United States will be a part of, unlike Kyoto. And so here we're getting started in 2050, not from scratch. There's been some stuff done. But but when you think, well, they were warning about this in the 1950s, it's a little bit sobering. 
And I'm of the age where I've got three grandchildren and I want to be able to, before I die, to look them in the eye and say, I did the best I could to give you the world in a form that you can enjoy. We've destroyed a lot of species in the world. My one of my youngest grandchild is cries when she thinks about it. And my generation has a mixed record, but that, that's how I look at it. Because we were so late to do it, we can't do it in a totally comfortable way, which if we'd done it in an equal glide path doing a little bit each year, it would have been pretty easy in hindsight. So in that sense, I think, yeah, crisis applies to it. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's the only crisis, but it's certainly one that has to be dealt with urgently. Um, mm -hmm. If we double click into the 1970s, the oil embargo, the oil crisis, then something that we've covered on the show before is the effect of policy on fuel efficiency standards. Part of, from what I understand, the admin said, hey, I mean, one way to solve for energy independence is by compelling auto manufacturers to increase fuel efficiency. But the nuance there is the written words had capped outcomes, right? It was increase your fuel efficiency from A to B. And because of that, we did also stagnate for decades because then there was no top-down pressure from policymakers saying, you have to get better every year. You have to get here, but once you're here, you're good. I'm wondering, I mean, you've studied this at length. Yeah, absolutely. You're on one of my favorite subjects. Uh, in 1975, we passed fuel efficiency standards, more or less requiring automobiles to be twice as efficient by in 10 years, by 1985. And it had loopholes in it, so the doubling was exaggeration, but they were still significant. So when Carter came in, he, he was writing the rules to implement that law, and he front-loaded it. So most of the change had to come early in the 10 years and not late. And then... When, when President Reagan came in, he delayed it for a couple of years. And, and then from basically the late, 19, uh, late uh, 1980s to 2007, we didn't update them at all, either by rule or law. We came close in the early 90s. There was a law in Congress that came close to passing that would have been significant, but it failed. So those to me, I, I refer to those as the lost years of climate change, because to me, a gradual annual updating of efficiency standards for automobiles would be, it's not that hard to do. So here we lost about 20 years of progress. So then in 2007, the Congress comes in and mandates a new efficiency standard for automobiles, which was pretty good at the time after all this inaction, probably motivated more by 9-11 than by climate change. But whatever the motivation, it was helpful on climate change. And then when Obama came in, he went on steroids a little bit with the standards. And he had two additional advantages. He had California, which is very aggressive in adopting standards. And the Supreme Court in 2007 ruled that the Clean Air Act could be used to mandate standards for climate change, including automobiles. He had those tools. Now, the Obama standards were extremely helpful. They had some loopholes in them, particularly for SUVs that are killing us right now. But on the appliance side, air conditioners and that kind of thing, once it got started, it kept going, partly because the manufacturers didn't contest it. But in history, I, I've concluded that it's not so much the resistance of the companies, 
But this uh, religious resistance to government regulation, not accepting that if you're going to have a clean environment, you're going to have some regulation of pollution. And so we've had some cases in history where a government that was anti-regulation was reducing regulations more than the industry was even asking. It's an interesting study in human nature. And as I say, that was the easiest path to go down and it continues to be an extremely important path because now efficiency is going to lead us to the electric automobile. As you keep ratcheting up the standard, you have to move to hybrids and then to electric. And that's where the future, I think, lies. I'm curious. We have a new president that's made some pretty audacious and ambitious plans around energy, built from a financing standpoint. He's creating new departments focused on climate, putting a lot of capital behind it. I'm curious in in your seat and given that you've worked now with multiple presidents. What are your thoughts on a Biden admin? Does it does it propel energy independence? Does it get us closer to a North Star that you're proud of? Does it threaten energy independence in any way? What are your broader perspectives here? Well, obviously, this is a very encouraging moment because a lot of people who've been on the right side of the climate uh, debate are, are now in charge. But they don't have a strong political hand because the Senate is 50-50. And I think people have to realize that one of the Democratic senators is from West Virginia. So it's unrealistic to expect him to throw coal under the bus. We have to be very strategic. So my fear with the Biden administration, not so much with Biden himself, I've met Biden a couple of times, don't know him well, is that there will be too much perfectionism. And by that, I mean, you get a proposal that's going to help on climate change and you say, well, that's not perfect, so I'm going to reject it. I I think in Obama, if you read Obama's memoirs, he's very clear on this. When you get a victory, take it and then come back next year and fight for the next step. And I I hope that's the way. And I've written a few articles about this. The easy thing to do is to really push solar technology. I mean, who's against pushing solar technology? Even very conservative people in politics, libertarians often are big solar advocates and push that and, and push the electric car. But don't accept, don't think you're going to have to uh, you create one package and wrap a, a, wrap a bow around it and you've done your job. You're going to have to year after year come back and, and up your game. I, I think there are some victories that could be achieved in the next year or two in the current uh, political environment. And I would say grab those and don't sit there and say, oh, but we should be doing this and this and this. Our system has strengths and weaknesses, and it's not all that great. Now, there are some real assets right now. A lot of companies, are their brand depends on being viewed as green. They're trying to hire smart young employees who don't want to work for people who aren't committed to climate goals. And wind and solar and battery technologies are zooming, and that's not going to stop. There's a lot going on. I mean, it, in some ways, it's remarkable that the previous administration did no more damage to the climate situation than they did, because there, there had been some momentum that had been built up. But the momentum we have is certainly not sufficient to get us to where we need to be. Oh, you're spot on. And I love your, the anecdote from Obama's memoir. Take the victory. Don't take the victory. That's going to take many years with a bow on top. Take one win at a time. 
I yes. love that. There was one thing too that in the book. He, I forget what the issue is. It might have been healthcare, but he said it. It seemed at the time, and what he reflected was he was doing what at the time he thought was right. And now looking back at it, it was more complicated. And so I think we have to be careful about taking people who've worked on this before and done some good things and condemning them because they didn't do enough.、Uh, I think. Anyone who's—I mean, I find myself going back and second-guessing opinions I had ten years ago based on what I know now, and so we all, I think, have to realize we're in the same same boat and and, and look at the the positive. I mean, you can't be Pollyannish about this in any sense, but、uh, you do have to, as you say, seize on the positive from、mm-hmm. time to time. Jay, one more question before we put a bookend on it: What do you hope? Readers will take away from the book. There's one thing that you hope people leave after reading Energy Crises. What, what do you hope that is? That making major changes in energy, major energy systems, is not easy, but it's doable. And by that, if you take the metric of the '70s, it was dependence on foreign oil, and it got as high as seventy or sixty percent in later years of net imports of oil. We're now down to zero. We're slight exporter of oil, and so if we could make a change that big, it wasn't easy. We can do the climate change thing. I, I see those in some ways as comparable. So I, I would challenge the reader to say, yeah, these things are, don't fit on a bumper sticker necessarily. But if I look at it, follow a story that I think is a very interesting story, maybe they can get some hope out of that that we can tackle the climate issue. No better way to to cap off, everyone. You're just listening to to Jay Hakes. He has a new book coming out called Energy Crises: Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Hard Choices in the 1970s. Jay, one, thank you for bearing with me through the early technical difficulties, and thank you for giving me your time and for devoting a lifetime to this type of work. Seriously, thank you so much, Jay. I enjoyed it. Great questions. Hey there! You made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show, so if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us hello at ingathands.us. Thank you so much again, and look forward to bring you another new episode. Next Tuesday.